tonight are going to do chapters 2 and chapter 3, amen? The book of Revelation is written by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, as spoken to the Apostle John. It is a series of visions. In Revelations 1 to 3, we have the visions to the seven churches. In chapters 4 through 7, we have the seven seals. In chapters 8 through 11, the seven trumpets. In chapters 12 through 15, there's numbered visions. Chapters 16 to 19, the seven plagues. And then again, in chapters 19 to 22, more numbered visions. And interestingly, at the end of each vision, there is a compelling message of triumph by God and to the church. And so today, we're going to start, so to speak, at the end of our text, to be able to jump, open up our study. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 3. Let's do it! In some of the words Jesus spoke to the church at Laodicea, He says in verse 19, Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Now, we don't usually define love that way, do we? But Jesus does. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To him who overcomes. And that's the theme today. We shall overcome. Amen? See, at the end of every admonition to every church, the seven churches, there's that challenge and promise. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, that, now to close, now this is the close of, to that vision. Look what happens right after. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I, had heard, I first heard speaking to me, like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and before me was a throne in heaven, with someone sitting on it. See, does that fire you up right there? Immediately, this challenge to all the churches followed by this vision of coming before the very throne of God. Does does that excite you about the text? Then come back next week and we'll talk about chapter 4. Oh, come on. But let's go to chapter 2 is where we'll begin. Remember, this is vision... This vision is of the seven churches. Now, there are more than seven churches in the province of Asia. The province of Asia was located in the western part of what we call modern-day Turkey. But the number seven was very purposefully picked by the Lord because it showed completeness. Amen? Amen. And the whole idea right here is that it wasn't just a message for these seven churches, but it was a message for the entire church of Jesus Christ in the first century. And because it's Scripture... Its message is for all the churches in the 21st century. Amen? Amen. Come on. Of course, very interestingly, the challenge for the church in Ephesus was they had forsaken their first love. But look at the promise of those who overcome. Come on. Verse 7. 
Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To he who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. What a great promise, isn't it? And I think a great paradox because the challenge of the church in Ephesus is that they lost their first love. They had forsaken their first love. And Jesus says, listen, if you overcome, if you persevere, if you don't quit, here's the promise. I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Of course, he's referring back to the Garden of Eden, where the first man and first woman had, so to speak, heaven on earth. Amen, guys? Amen. But does that fire you up that heaven is the perfect of a spot? Yeah. And this time we won't blow it. Amen? Amen. Blow it and and lose it. Well, let's look at the promise of the church in Smyrna. The church in Smyrna was the one that was under heavy persecution. As a matter of fact, the admonition Jesus... The admonition of Jesus is be faithful even to the point of death. Come on. Here's the promise in verse 11. Yeah. Come on, bro. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by a second death. He says, yes, the first death, first death as a Christian, maybe that as a martyr, as a witness. Remember, we talked about the word witness in Greek is where we get the word martyr from. He says, you may indeed lose your life for standing up for Jesus Christ. But don't be afraid of the second death because you're not going to hell. You are promised heaven. Come on. Is that fire up right there? Yeah. Okay. Now let's get to the next church, the church at Pergamum. To the angel of the church in Pergamum writes, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. You know, Pergamum was evidently a gorgeous city. And it was built around this, this mountain. The whole city was built around the base of the mountain. And the center of the city was this humongous mountain that rose to the clouds. Wow. And at the summit of the mountain was this massive altar to Zeus. And so you can see what the city life centered around. Wow. The worship of Zeus. A false god with a false hope. And right here, we know the admonition is going to be about holding to the word of God. For he says, hey, these are the words of him who is a sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. You see, the imagery right here would go back to the massive citadel of Zeus. Amen, guys? Come on. He says, hey, I know that Satan lives in that city. You know, for a lot of us, we think... Hey, that's the city I live in. It's interesting. I grew up in a, in a very big Italian family. Amen? So I don't know if there are any, any towns out here. <laughs> and uh, so my mom's side of the family is Italian. Very big. I have uh, five uncles and aunts. Um, and that led to about eight, uh, eight uh, cousins. So eight grandchildren for my grandparents. 
And uh, on my dad's side of family, is, is, he's Armenian. And so it's a little bit smaller, but Armenia is actually right north of Turkey, right in the middle. And I had uh, actually two cousins on that side. So you can see kind of the big difference. You can think of the, the large parts we had uh, for, for holidays yeah. with my mom's side family. But on my dad's side, we'd have a very small get-together. Here and there, I would see my cousins. Now, my cousins, I had one who was older than me, about five years. Uh, and then I had one that was about six months older than myself. And just like my parents divorced when I was about five, uh, so did my uncle divorce as well. And so I'm really grateful. My, my father moved always within about 20 minutes, 10 minutes of where I lived with my mom. But then I found out with my cousins that they actually moved to, with their mom to Long Island, which is about four hours away from their dad. Wow. And so you can see that, that, that they barely spent time with him. Wow. And it was really hard for them. Well, in Long Island, you need, kind of, you need a lot of money. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, we actually visited there, and it was very ritzy, very nice. Uh, probably like the nice places of Florida, right? in, uh, West Palm Beach area, and parts of Miami. <laughs> but, you know, here are my cousins, uh, especially the, the one that was six months older than me. His name's Cameron. And he started a rapping career. Uh, he started performing. He started to, uh, you know, mature of, out of, uh, mature of being out of the team. And I remember seeing them Thanksgiving 2015. And at that point, Justin and I were dating for, I think, about two months. And uh, she actually came with me to my grandparents' place. And she had to meet both my cousins. And they are both really sharp. Uh, his, uh, his brother, so Cameron is my age. Uh, he's a performer. His brother, who's older, actually is a lawyer in New York City. Wow. Uh, very smart, very sharp, very well put together. Wow. And here's uh, my cousin, so persuadable, just entering the party life, wanting a life of pleasure, hitting on women. You know, the, the picture that his, that his brother painted uh, of what it means to live a life of, of pleasure was so, so enticing to him. It, it was so desirable. Because that's what it means to have a full life, right? It's how much game you got. It's how many girls, you, I mean, it's how many girls you're macking on, right? It's about how many girls you get in bed. He had, the, he had a, the freshest cuts I've ever seen in his hair. He had fresh songs. Fresh, rich friends. Pretty, pretty muscular body. Worked out a lot. Had the, the girlfriend that everyone envied and wanted. But going after a party life. He had so much potential, power, and someone would say, swag. <laughs> Four months later, after Thanksgiving, it's Sunday morning, about March. Actually, it's uh, March 16, 2016. And... I'm getting ready to, to host a house church at my place. And it's my first time preaching at the house church. And so I'm a little nervous, but I wake up. Uh, and I get a call from my dad at about 10.15, which he doesn't normally call me at 10.15. He's usually uh, back on the Cape with, with friends. And so I get a call from him, and he goes, Hey, uh, you know. Come on, bro. Come on, bro. My aunt found her son, my cousin, 
Cameron dead on his bed after overdosing on drugs. At that moment, I felt the very presence of Satan. I saw the work of Satan through my family's life. I saw, I saw it in one of my cousins. And I, I think that uh, as disciples, we feel that satanic influence around us as well. Do we not? You may see it from the outside. You may see it from, what, from all the thousands of people that go to the games. You may see it from people going home for vacation, having a good time with the family and friends. But we all know the darkness that Satan tries to entice us with. Yeah. Yeah. We all know the sins that, that Satan wants us to indulge in. We know the despair, the loss of hope, and the emptiness that Satan tries to grab us with. We feel everywhere in our neighborhoods, where we work, and at school. And yet, sometimes in the midst of the attack on us, we forget the people in the world without Christ. Without the Spirit of Christ. You see, they're getting overwhelmed by Satan. And we need to understand that this is how wicked the world is. And yet, so many of us just put up kind of a veneer of happiness, and yet, as disciples... We need to know one thing. If someone is not a disciple, deep down, they are hurting. Yeah. Yeah. And we have to get the message out. Amen, church? Yeah, amen. Come on, bro. Now, very interestingly right here, Jesus is trying to tell the disciples at Pergamum, Hey, I know how tough it is to be a disciple there in Pergamum, where Satan lives. Now, look at this verse, 14. Come on, bro. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There is some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you have also those who hold to the teaching of Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with a sword of my mouth. Wow. He introduces himself to the disciples there in verse 12 as... One who has a sharp, double-edged sword. Come on. Then he concludes with the admonition. He says, listen, if you don't repent, I will fight against them with a sword of my mouth. So all this section is going to be about the very words of God. Amen? Amen. And I think most of you are familiar with the story of Balaam in the book of Numbers. Come on, Balaam. Balaam was a false prophet that had been hired by Balak, the king of Moab, to put a curse on the Israelites because the Israelites were getting victory after victory after victory. He says, hey, I need a prophet to curse those people. Well, of course, there's a bit of a humorous interaction that Balaam has with a talking donkey. But that's another good sermon that we don't have time to go into today. But nonetheless, a donkey talks to him and convinces him the way of God. And so at the end of the day, he blesses Israel. But nonetheless, the Bible teaches, and is very definitive in Numbers 31, verse 16, that it was the teaching of Balaam that lead all the people, all the Israelites, into immorality that we read about in Numbers 25. You guys remember where Phineas throws that spear into two people having sex? Yeah. Oh, wow. 
Balaam is blamed for that. So what he's saying right there is that there is a teaching in the church in the name of God that is allowing people to go into immorality. Wow. Then he talks about in verse 15. You also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Well, turn back to the church in Ephesus because now the church in Ephesus was messing up by what? Forsaking their first love. Yeah. But look at what Jesus says about them in verse 6 in chapter 2. Come on, bro. He says, But you have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. See, the Bible is quite strong. And in 1 Timothy 4.16, we know that we need to watch our life and our... Closely, amen. You guys got it. For by it, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Amen? You know, we live in a time where many churches are saying, Hey, all you do is, has, is all you do has to, you have to live a good life. You live a good moral life, come to church on Sunday, and you'll be saved. I mean, that's kind of the general feeling. As a matter of fact, there are some people that, that hold to it. I was born in America. I was born in the USA. Therefore, I must be a Christian. And since I'm a Christian, I am saved. It doesn't make any difference how I live my life. Now that's not what the Word of God says. And people are deceived. There's another group of people that say, Hold it! I got baptized as a little baby. Well, how'd you know that? Well, I was told that. And that means because I was baptized as a little baby... I'm saved. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter what I believe or what I do. But the Bible doesn't teach that. Amen. Another shortcut to salvation is a teaching many churches. They say, hey, all you got to do is say a little prayer. Jesus comes into your heart and you're good to go. Unfortunately... The Word of God does not teach that. These are false doctrines. The Bible teaches in Acts 2, 37-38 that we must respond in personal faith to Jesus Christ, that He is the resurrected Son of God, that leads us to being cut about our sins, which then leads us to repent of our sins, turn to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, and then immersed baptized in the water for the forgiveness of your sins to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what the book teaches. Now, we need to have a deep conviction. Amen, church? Some people say, well, what if God lets in a lot more people than what He says? Well, now hold it. What are you saying? That somehow God is going to change His Word? We need to be a people of the book. Come on, bro. Of the Bible. Are you with me right here, church? And whatever the Bible teaches, we need to be fired up to teach. And particularly the area, the era, the area of salvation. Yeah. You know, the actual inference being taught here in the church is that at Thyatira is that a group that grew up in the church, and particularly in the late first century, 
and early second second century, they're called the Gnostics. G N O S T I C S, the Gnostics. Some people even refer to the Nicolaitans, thinking that they came from Nicholas, one of the first deacons in Acts six. Yeah, that's just, that's just a tradition. There's no necessarily any truth to it, but it's not necessarily fake or false. But the teaching of the Gnostics began to infiltrate Christianity and destroy the hearts of Christianity. Well, what was the teaching of the Gnostics? It's actually very simplistic. The Greeks divided all their lives into two realms, the spiritual and the material. They said the spiritual is all good and the material is completely evil. And they said within any human being, there is a spark, something purely spiritual that longs to be with God. Now, you can see that there's some truths here. Amen? Amen. And you can see that what the appeal is to the Christians who aren't in the Word and be led astray. Mm-hmm. And within every person, there's a spark, a desire to be truly spiritual. But it's trapped in evil. The material body. They said, if you get this special knowledge, this gnosis in Greek, G-N-O-S-I-S, gnosis, knowledge. If you get the special knowledge for this life, then when you die, the material evil disappears and you, and you, totally, you become totally spiritually one with God. They become a new matikus, spiritual. Now, what was the issue right here? This teaching of Gnosticism came into the church. And so the quote, save Gnostics, Christian Gnostics went two different directions. One is they became aesthetics. In other words, they said, listen, anything that has to do with the body, anything that has to do with pleasure, we will have none of it. And so they retreat into convents. They retreat into places away from other men. And of course, we see the remnants of this kind of thinking to this very day. People think, well, if we get away from people, they get away from sin. Of course, the only problem is, you're still there, aren't you? (laughs) Secondly, it's totally avoiding the mission of Jesus Christ. And yet, even today, we revere these individuals that retreat from the world. And yet it's so counter to the life of Jesus Christ. The second and more popular Gnosticism in the church was liberty. The one that took huge liberties. Saying, hold it. I have this special knowledge. That allows me, when I die, I should be one with God. And so in this life, anywhere, at any time, that I can do anything. That is, what, that is what is being addressed right here in the church in Thyatira. Now let's look at what Jesus says in verse 16. Repent therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with a sword of my mouth. He says, listen, I'm going to come against you. But look at the promise in verse 17. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone 
with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Now, this is a really cool promise. He says, first of all, in contrast to the secret hidden knowledge, he says, if you persevere in the word of God, if you don't quit, if you overcome, I'm going to give you the hidden manna. Amen, church? Of course, manna is what sustained the Israelites in the desert. Remember that? He says, this is what you're going to get to survive on. Then he says, I will give also that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Well, in the first century, very often, they would have stones that would act like a mission ticket into a play or into a gathering. And so he's saying, if you persevere, you're going to get your ticket to heaven. Amen? Except it's going to be white, representing purity. Amen, church? Amen. And then he says, with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it, well, that's more of a reference to the secret knowledge, but more powerful than that, back in these particular days, there was a thought that if someone knew your name, you had power over them. And so he's saying, listen, if you're going to have a white stone, if you're going to have a ticket to heaven, your name's going to be on it, and nobody is going to know, nobody is going to have the power over you because you are under God. Does that fire up right there, church? You see, that's the promise to him who overcomes. Let's look at let's look at the church in Thyatira. Come on, bro. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, right? These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like a blazing fire, whose feet are burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love, and faith, your service and perseverance. And that you're doing more than you did at first. Wow. These folks must be cranking spiritually. But let's look at this. This is Jesus talking, right guys? He says, hey, I know your deeds. I know your love. I know your faith. I know your service. I know your perseverance. And hey, you were doing a lot more than you were doing when you were a baby Christian. Now, most of us will go... I'm cranking. I'm doing awesome spiritually. But we're going to find the Lord feels differently. As a matter of fact, there's something in their lives individually and collectively as a church that they are going to stop them from getting to heaven if they don't repent first. Let's look at verse 20. Nevertheless, that's scary. When Jesus, says, when Jesus says that, I have this oh, against no. you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into, into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on her bed of suffering, and will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Get this. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds. And I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. See the Gnosticism reference right here? 
I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold onto what you have until I come. You know, a lot of people teach that the problem and the sin of the church in Thyatira was immorality. In this case, he references back to Jezebel, the wife of Ahab, who protected the 450 prophets of Baal against Elijah, the prophet of God. And they let the people into immorality. But you'd be grossly wrong to think that this is what Jesus has against the churches, immorality. Now, there was gross immorality in church, and in the name of God. Isn't that frightening? But the sin of the church was not immorality, but the tolerance of immorality. Tolerating sin. And Jesus says, if you do not repent, it's going to keep you all out of heaven. We see a reference to this even in Paul's writing. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Jesus lays it out. First Corinthians 6 and verse 9. Or do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now hold it guys. He's speaking to the disciples right here. Yeah. Do not be deceived. Don't get faked out, he's trying to say. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with, with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. Amen, church? Amen. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Hey, that's the life we used to live. He says, don't go back to it. And this Gnosticism was saying, hey, as long as you got the deep secrets, you don't have to worry about any more of how you live your life. You know, it's interesting. In our former fellowship, there came this quest for maturity. There came this thought, I want to be mature. I want to be mature. And yet, in so many churches, this fellowship was dead. The church was dead. Why? Because they were tolerating sin. See, a church that doesn't lay out about sin is going to die. Yeah. Because it's lukewarm. And we need to have a conviction about that. Now, now let me just say this. There's no such thing as a perfect church. And there's no such thing as a perfect Christian. But that's why we have each other. So that we don't get deceived. But we have to love each other enough to say the tough things. Amen, church? Yeah, amen. Saying... Bro, dude, I think you're a coward. You haven't had a visitor in months. Saying, sis, it, it doesn't really look like you respect your Bible talk leader. That was a pretty sharp interaction. I saw you in with him. Brother, I love you and appreciate you for all you've done for the Lord and for who you are. But your room is a mess. I mean, do do we really love God, though? Then we're not going to tolerate sin in each other's life. We're not going to be down on one another, but just the opposite. We're going to love each other. Are with me right here, church? 
Now, let's look at our promise back in Revelation. <laughs> Revelation, chapter 2, verse 26. To he who overcomes and does my will to the end. And church, we will overcome. Come on. I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter. And will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give that one morning star. That is Jesus. He's the morning star. Amen. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I'm going to get your promise. I think for a lot of disciples, we even use the terminology, Hey, heaven's going to be great because I'll finally be saved. No, no, no. When you come out of the waters of baptism, you are saved. When Demetrius came out of the waters of baptism last week, he was saved. He became a son of God. He became a prince. He became a brother in Christ. And he can say, I am saved. You see, a lot of us think when we die, we get to reign with God. And Jesus in heaven. But what Jesus says is, listen, if you overcome, you get to reign on earth. Because no man controls you. You are under God. Isn't that awesome? You are right now reigning with God and Jesus over the whole earth. And you thought you were having a bad week this week? (laughs) You're a prince. You're a princess. You're reigning. That's cranking. That's awesome. That should fire you up for another week. Amen? But that's the promise to anyone that's striving to overcome. Amen? Amen. Let's move to the church in Sardis. Come on. Yes. Yes. To the angel of the church in Sardis writes, These are the words of him. Who holds the seven spirits of God into the seven stars? I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Mm. Wake up! Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Wow. Repent, re- remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time. I will come to you. Come on. Right here, Jesus lays it out, saying, You have the reputation of being alive. Mm-hmm. Now remember, he's talking to the whole church, amen? amen? He says, You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wow. Of course, I think that, is, that applies to individuals too, right here. Mm-hmm. Don't you think so? Yeah. Has that brother. Or sister's alarm ever gone off again and again? Oh. <laughs> and you go over to wake the brother up or sister up. And all you hear is, five more minutes. And you see him kind of go to the covers. Right? Crumpy, annoyed, frustrated. Some of you guys lying to yourself. Name dropping. But all, all you hear is a grumpy gremlin. Right here, he says to the churches that have a reputation of being alive but are dead. 
He says, you've got to wake them up. Come on, bro. But when you wake up an individual, what happens? They're a little grumpy. Now, I don't know if you're the wake-upper or the wake-up-bee. <laughs> but if you're the wake-upper, it's a rare day that when you wake up the person, and they go, Aw, thanks, bro. Thanks, sis, for waking me up. I'm so glad they did that. <laughs> you're awesome. Come on, you. <laughs> I mean... Who wakes up in a great mood? And yet some of you, some of you are taken back that when we preach the word and it goes around the city and the world and these churches around us are upset going, what are we doing? Maybe we need to preach more gently. Let me tell you something. When you call churches to wake up, a lot of times they're not going to wake up. Going, oh, thanks for preaching the word of God. <laughs> and thanks for telling us that we have a reputation for being dead. <laughs> Get a conviction from the word of God. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just lay it out right here. We believe in this fellowship that to lead, you must earn the right. Now, that, that doesn't mean that the people that are Bible talk leaders are perfect. Amen, Jacob. See, I, I hope I, I didn't bust anyone's bubble right there. <laughs> but if they're not living the life, at some point we expect them to step down. Now, that may, they may have done awesome, awesome things in the past. But if they're not presently spiritual, how can you lead others to a place that you're not going? Wow. Now, we have a deep conviction about that on a congregational, a congregational level, and that's good. But I think we need to have a conviction about that in a worldwide fellowship. Come on, Come on bro. I think it's absolutely ludicrous when we have individuals and churches that want, be, that want to be part of a worldwide fellowship whose churches are lukewarm or dead. Now, they may have done awesome things in the past, and I, I don't want to crush them for that. I don't want to take away what they've done. But if your present situation is not on fire for God, you have no right to lead others. Amen, church? Amen. And we as a church need to have that as conviction, a deep conviction. Amen. Let's look at the promise in verse 4. Yet, you have a few people in Sardis. Who have not soiled their clothes. I think it's important to see. Jesus calls the whole church dead. But in labeling the whole church dead. There's still some people in there that really want it. Do you see yeah. that right there? Yeah. They will walk with me dressed in white. Got purity again. For they are worthy. The one who's victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life. But will acknowledge that, that name before my Father and His angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. God says, listen, if you're faithful, if you don't quit, I, will, I won't take out my eraser. Mm. Implication. You can lose your salvation. Mm. There are churches that preach once saved, always saved. Mm -hmm. 
That is a false doctrine. When you walk away from Jesus Christ, that is the unforgivable sin. And we need to understand. We need to be secure in our salvation. That we can have, that we can even be doing lousy spiritually. And we're still in there by the grace of God. Amen. Amen. But what do you quit? That eraser comes out. Until you repent. Amen, church? Amen. Let's move on to the church in Philadelphia. In verse 7. To the church, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. The open door right here is an open door to heaven. He's saying no one can shut it. No human being can shut it. No amount of persecution, no amount of controversy, no human can shut it. And it's open for you, Philadelphia Church. Come on. I know that you have little strength. Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. Now, this is an amazing passage to the church. See, there's nothing negative against the church right here. But he's saying, I know your deeds. I know you're weak. So what he's saying, hang in there. Hold on. Don't quit. It's going to be worth it. You know, earlier today, it was in an awesome Bible study. Uh, with a Man, that's a little bit older than me. But, but still young, uh, and it's Justin. Uh, I, I had a great, great Bible study with him, and it's just—it's amazing hearing his story. Mm-hmm. It's amazing to, to see what God has done in his, in his life for the past forty years, yep. and how God has strategically allowed him to go different through different situations, to be in the military, in relationships. Why? So that he can come to a place and study the Bible, yeah. so he can encounter disciples and learn how to get to heaven, yeah. so that he can embrace his purpose. At the end of the Bible study, I was like, bro, do you want to repent of these sins? He's like, yes. I said, what are you willing to do? Anything, he said. Anything at all. Come on. And I believe, and I told him, I was like, bro, you're meant to be, to be in my seat one day. Come on. To teach younger men than yourself and older men, uh, older men than yourself the very words of God. You're meant to be a leader. You're meant to, to, to be a discipler. You see? Because he saw himself as weak, he had the very heart of God, who had a heart for the weak. Now, look at this. Look at the promise in verse 11. Come on, bro. It says, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have, so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. 
Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, this is an incredible vision. We understand from the Old Testament that God himself dwelt within the Israelite community. What? There in Jerusalem, in the physical temple. And as a matter of fact, the church is equated to being the very temple of God. You can write down Ephesians chapter 2. And what he's saying, he's saying, listen, if you guys endure, if you guys overcome, hold on, keep a hold of that crown. He says, here's what's going to happen. You aren't just going to be a weakling up in heaven. You're going to be a pillar in the temple of God. Now, you guys who have seen all those old Greek and Roman buildings, right? The, the, especially the ones with the roofs that are so, so awesome and you're like, wow, how do they hold up all that weight? Well, they're pretty impressive. But you look at the roof, okay, roof looks cool. But you look at those pillars. You look at those pillars, you go, whoa, that's a cranky pillar. Come on. <laughs> to hold up that, that whole roof. Come on, bro. I mean, they're amazing. They are unbelievable. And God is saying, listen, weak one, you are not going to be weak forever. Just hold on. And you're going to be a cranking pillar and temple of God oh, and heaven. Amen. Yes. You see, that is the promise of him who overcomes. One more church. The church of Laodicea. Come on. Come on, bro. Verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea writes, These are the words of the Amen. The faithful and true witnesses. The ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds. That you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I want to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. And white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. And salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Wow. Strong words, huh? I think this passage becomes all the more interesting with a little bit of historical background. Come on, brother. First of all, Laodicea was a very rich city. One of the primary elements of it was gold. Secondly, it was known for its fine black wool. Black wool was used for textiles. Thirdly, it had one of the most famous medical schools in all the world at, at that time. Specializing in and eye care, and eye ointment, or eye salve. Fourthly, its water supply came from Heropolis, where there were hot springs. Now, Heropolis is a church in the city of Asia, but it's not one of the seven churches listed. But it's a very interesting city, because in Heropolis, there were hot springs, and so the Roman aqueducts would, that were built from Heropolis to Laodicea uh, would... would, would Make that water travel from city to city. But guess what the temperature of the water was by the time it got to Laodicea? Lukewarm. See, 
There's a lot of stuff right here that Jesus was literally putting in their faces to make them see where they're really at spiritually. Without question, Jesus lays it out. He says, man, I wish you either hot or cold. I wish you either one or the other. Yeah. It's interesting. A lot of people go, well, hold it. Isn't it better that I'm lukewarm or cold? I mean, that'd be most of our reasonings, right? But the reason for that is that when you're lukewarm water, it's very comfortable. And you really don't know where you're at. In a conference, there was this, this preacher that at one time exclaimed, Well, how do we know we're lukewarm? Well, that has a double-edged double edge to it see there are a lot of people who are lukewarm who don't know if you're able to ask that question it's concerning is it not you see a few months ago uh, Jess and I were, were living up in Syracuse and uh, we, uh, we got there June, January 2nd about a week, late, a week later we took a little road trip to Niagara Falls we got an awesome little Airbnb right there. And uh, it was actually middle of winter, so actually all the falls were frozen. Oh, wow. So you just, you just see the sheets of ice just packed in there. It was so awesome. It was freezing, though. It was cold there. Yeah. Uh, we couldn't stay, out, couldn't stay out too long. Uh, so we stayed in the Niagara Falls area and then drove uh, two hours up to Toronto, which is actually where we first met uh, at the inaugural Toronto, at the Toronto inaugural service. Wow. And so we went there, checked out a bunch of different places, but we walked in Chinatown part, and uh, just was like, wow, I never had hot pot. I was like, oh, we, gotta, we gotta find you, find a sweet place for hot pot. Have you guys ever had hot pot? Oh yeah. Oh, it's awesome. And so what, what they do in hot pot is they have this, this bowl right, that's sitting in front of you, and they, they, they dump oil in there and water. And it has its own little personal heater, and so it heats it up. And so after a few minutes, it's bubbling oil. Now, looking at that, you wouldn't want to put your hand in that. Because <laughs> you're like, that's hot. And so you would take a bunch of the, the, the raw uh, fish and raw chicken and stuff, and you'd dunk it in there, let it cook for a little bit, and then take it out. Amen? It was really, really good. And so you wouldn't touch that oil, though, because why? It's hot. So we know what hot is. Well, what's cold? Well, have you ever been to someone's pool in the winter now it might not get too cold down here but I'm sure some pools might be a little chilly but you don't come out there with your bathing suit in the middle of winter and jump in thinking oh it's probably lukewarm no it'll blow you away how cold it is you see you know when something's hot you know when something's cold it's the lukewarmness that fakes people out. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Come on. Well, spiritually speaking, he's challenging the people there. Yeah. Hey, you're lukewarm. And you think, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth. I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you're pitiful, wretched, poor, blind, and naked. Mm-hmm. That's where you're really at. Mm-hmm. Well, let's try and figure something out today. Amen? Amen. This sounds like something important stuff to figure out. Because if being lukewarm makes Jesus nauseous, 
We certainly don't want to do that, do we, church? No. Well, let's see if we can figure this out. If someone is cold towards God, well, they aren't really reading their Bible. They're not praying. And they're certainly not going to come to church on Wednesday. Wow. That's pretty cold, amen? Can everyone agree that's cold? Yeah. Now, if you're hot, you're on fire for God. You're reading your Bible every morning and you're enjoying it. You're praying and you're seeing your prayers come true. You're sharing your faith. People are coming out to church with you. You're fired up. You're sticking around the fellowship. You're all fired up about how God, because God is the most important thing in your life. Is that hot? Okay. So what do you find cold? You need to find hot. So what's the warmness? Everything in the middle. Wow. Now, question. And, and you just have to ask yourself personally. Are you cold? Not reading your Bible today. Not praying. Not going to midweek. Okay. You guys are quiet. Are you hot? Are you on fire for God? Are you in the Word every morning? Are you praying? Are you seeing your prayers come true? Are you sharing your faith? Are you bringing visitors? Are you just so fired up that you can't be prayed out of the fellowship? Pride out, fellowship. Pride out. Pride out. That's hot, amen? Now here's the thing. If you're not cold, and you're not hard, hot, where are you? You know, some of you didn't even know that. And that's the danger of lukewarmness. That's the danger of how serious it, it is. Jesus says, those whom I, whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. You know, God loves the lukewarm disciple. But he's going to rebuke the tar out of you. He says, so be earnest and repent. Yeah. Amen, guys? Amen. Yeah. You know, the promise to those who repent are awesome. Look in verse 21. To him overcomes, and we shall overcome. Amen, church? I will give him the right to sit with me in my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. When I was a little kid, one of the things that I loved to do was hop into my dad's car. Right in the driver's seat. My dad's seat. Amen? Come on, bro. Now, I'm sure my dad was frightened. When, uh, and, uh, when I turned 16, got my license. And uh, my, my wife still is. <laughs> but amen. Uh, isn't it awesome to sit where your dad sits? Yeah. yeah. And you know, when I got into the car, he, was his own, he used to own this old, uh, that wasn't old, it was a, like a sporty Nissan. Hey. And I sat there, put my hands on, this, on that steering wheel. And I felt better about myself instantly because I was sitting in my dad's driver's seat of the sports car. Come on, that's awesome. 
And, and, and Jesus is saying, if you persevere, if you don't quit, yeah. if you overcome, I'm going to get out of my throne and let you sit on it. Whoa. Now, don't tell me okay. that's not going to be awesome. Wow. You get up there, right to heaven, and you go, no, Jesus, no. Okay, thank you very much. <laughs> I, I, just, I just want to try out for, for a second. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? Yeah. That's an awesome throne. Yeah. That's how much Jesus loves you. That's how much Jesus cares about you. So what do you got to do? You got to overcome. You got to be faithful to the end. And then we will sit on the throne with Jesus in heaven. Thank you. And to God be all the glory. Amen.